0: Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachib, founder and co CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dan, welcome back. So good to see you. I, I think you've actually set a record. You're back for your fifth, I think this is your fifth appearance on the show.
1: Yeah, well, I think it's not necessarily due to any, you know, um, extraordinary nature of me or what I do, but I just think I was there at the beginning and uh, right place, right time kind of thing. And, and, and you know, we hung around socially and I was the easy get.
0: <laughs> well, t- timing is everything and you are easy. And we do love all things Blue Zones. Always, always a pleasure to have you. And now we're neighbors in Miami. That's right. The new Blue Zone. The new Blue Zone. The new Blue Zone. Uh, so what have you been up to? I think the The last time we had you was about, uh, almost a year ago. And I saw you in Miami in February when we were thinking about moving to Miami. We were vacationing, but we had yet to move. So what, what have you been up to in terms of all things, blue zones since we last saw each other?
1: I've been shooting a four part documentary series for a streaming service. I can't mention right now, but that should be out next year. And, um, I've, uh, Uh, With Matt O'Hara, who's the CEO of Vital Farms, we started a new uh, Blue Zones uh, food line called Blue Zones Kitchens, uh, food inspired by the world's longest-lived people with a maniacal focus on deliciousness. Um, That should be out later. But mostly, you know, during the pandemic, when everybody else was sort of locked down and being safe, uh, National Geographic photographer David McCoy and I struck off across America. We literally zigzagged all four corners and in between 55 chefs, uh, to write this new book, The Blue Zone, American Kitchen, which comes out December 5th, and um, in time for Christmas, I might add. But the idea was to fuse 100 recipes that live to 100 with uh, you know basically coffee table type photography and then science writing. I, I wrote an essay for January's uh, uh, issue of National Geographic magazine, which appears in a slightly altered form in the beginning of the book. And it makes an argument, Jason, for the lost American diet of longevity. And um, I've spent three years tracking down a diet that we know from other blue zones work could add ten to thirteen extra years of life expectancy, uh, you know, as compared to eating a standard American diet.
0: So the book is beautiful. I have it right here, and the recipes look delicious. And I'm excited to to dive in. And on that note. the the lost recipes or lost foods of blue zones in America. Walk us through that journey.
1: As with all my work with National Geographic, it begins with research. So we spent about 150 hours at NYU. Uh, well in their archives, we got, uh, James Maitland, who was our research director for this project. Uh, we, we found dug down 90, uh, uh, anthropology studies and diet dietary surveys done in America since about 1850. And we, from, from my other work at National Geographic and Blue Zone, we know exactly what the, the dietary pattern is that is associated with longevity around the world. So we look for that pattern here in America. And uh, the bad news is, except for perhaps the Adventists, there's nobody really eating that way today. Uh, We had to go back about 100 years, and we found, largely because of the work of a scientist named uh, A.O. Atwater, Uh, he basically uh, helped start the USDA, Um, he did dietary surveys in a variety of different ethnicities and found among the African-American, Asian-American, Latinos, and and, uh, Native Americans living in the United States, be, be, between about 1890 and um, 1930, dead ringer for an Ameri- a Blue Zone diet. Uh, almost the exact same pattern. And that pattern is largely whole food plant-based, uh, a, a ton of beans, greens, and whole grains, local spices and herbs. Um, I would say mo- n- most no- noteworthy, they had a genius for combining ingredients to make them taste more delicious than, say, meat, which isn't to say they didn't eat meat, but meat was always a condiment, you know, a a piece of pork the size of a marshmallow to flavor an entire pot of collard greens and beans or uh, or celebratory food. So, you know, once you're, as uh, often before refrigeration, they'd slaughter a pig and quite literally pig out for a while. And then it was back mostly to their grains beans, greens, and tubers. And um, so I captured that diet and uh, focused only on the plant-based. I mean, everybody knows you can throw a slab of meat in a frying pan and make it taste pretty good. But the real genius is expressed when you take these peasant foods, these cheap foods that we know are high in micronutrients, they're high in fiber, and make them taste more delicious than their dead animal analogs.
0: And so you mentioned cheap foods, and many would equate cheap foods with processed foods and foods that are subsidized by the government. And in the book, you talk about high fructose corn syrup being developed in 1957, and that being a turning point in terms of processed food. You also mentioned our mutual friend, Mark Schatzker, who we've had on the show. So can you spend a moment talking about the role of processed food here because we equate cheap with process. we don't equate cheap cheap with plant based.
1: Right. Well, before we we'll get into the process here in a second, but if you've checked the price of beans lately, uh, the, you can make you can make a, a meal for ten people for ten bucks. I mean, it's a dollar ninety nine for black eyed peas or black beans or lentils or garbanzo beans, and if you know how to make those taste delicious, uh, maybe a, you know can of Uh, stewed tomatoes and some spices and um, some, some grains, maybe even some celery and carrots. These aren't expensive things. But to your point, yes. So mostly I disruptively say, but I also believe it, if you are unhealthy and overweight in this country, it's probably not your fault. And the reason I can say that with some certainty, if you look at the data from 1980, 70s, 80s, you see that uh, there about there was about a third the rate of obesity, a seventh the rate of uh, diabetes, type two diabetes, a tenth the rate of reported dementia within older populations. Um, and well, what has changed? And by the way, our healthcare has gone up by a factor of four. You know, we now spend about 19% of our GDP on uh, largely avoidable diseases. And that represents almost a quadrupling of what we were paying in 1970. And, and it's it's not showing any any end in sight. Uh, so why is that? Part of it, right, uh, in between 1957 and 1970, it was kind of the heyday for food science. You know, and this is when these food companies hired the brightest minds, these chemists, to make emulsifiers and artificial sweeteners. And this is where shashner comes in and talks about the bliss point and about how these foods are just maniacally uh, created, often out of inorganic substances, uh, to make us absolutely love uh, th- this junk food, this highly processed food. At the beginning, it was a great idea. But we didn't realize that these things were going to be bad for us. And... A processed food. So, what's the what's the genesis of processed food? I argue it began with uh, Richard Nixon's Secretary of Agriculture, a guy named Earl Butts. wasn't a very nice guy, but he was an effective guy. And Nixon said to him, "We got a food problem in this country. It's a Cold War issue. We got people hungry in America. Fix the food supply." And Butts went out and uh, basically helped. Uh, shape agricultural policy to favor basically four foods: grains, which wheat, corn, rice, uh, soybeans, and then I guess sugar as well. So maybe five, four grains, and and then uh, sugar, sugar beets. And we got really good at it. We part of it, you know, a few things happened. We got better at modifying seeds so that they were uh, more productive. Uh, we turned petrochemicals from World War II into fertilizers that also increased yields. And we put this enormous incentive on farmers to grow just these four inputs. And uh, I, for the book, I, I chart that as the price of these inputs drop, the health metrics uh, or the the sickness, the chronic disease in America skyrockets at the same time. Um, so... Um, you know, when you think of what are the inputs for most of our junk food? Well, it's corn, you know, chips and, and rice and wheat, which is made to make these junky cereals and sugar. These are all very cheap and American companies do what American companies are best at, which are make a profit. That's what, you know, it's American enterprise. And I I actually do not fault the General Mills and the and the Crafts of America, they're like every other company in America. Their job is to maximize shareholder value, and their job isn't to make us healthy. Um, and they've done a very good job at creating cheap food from cheap inputs, uh, engineer it to taste irresistible, and mar- get the best minds on Madison Avenue. Something like $14 billion a year is spent to sell us the notion that you know Doritos and Coke and and, uh, and McDonald's are, are, you know, the most alluring foods, and they convince a lot of us. Meanwhile, almost nothing is spent on beans <laughs> or grains or greens, which we know uh, yield health.
0: Before, I, we'll come back to the book and some of the foods, but my, my big question here, and I ask this question off on the show, whenever we get in the subsidies and, and the food system, how do we write that chip? In that we are subsidizing the wrong foods. Imagine if back in 76 or whatever the year was or Nixon's secretary of agriculture decided to, hey, we're going all in on broccoli, blackberries, uh, lentils and wild salmon be a different world. But how how do you, in in, in terms of the system, you know, and I want to give people hope and and we'll segue to to the book and foods, but in your opinion, what can be done there, if if anything, or just is what it is?
1: There's a few things. Um, The agriculture bill is very difficult because the uh, farmers have uh, undue sway on politicians. The big food companies and beverage companies have the army of lobbyists. And as you know, Uh, Washington is hugely, you know, money talks and there's where the big money is. And, and there's a lot of incentives not to unwind that, but there's still, you know, my, my daytime job, these blue zone projects, which I've, uh, I've worked on for, I've created and worked on for nearly 15 years. You can get a lot done at the municipal level. So, uh, it's a lot easier for people listening right here to influence the local, um, uh, junk, there's lots of ordinances that curb junk food advertising and billboard signs. We know that occasions lower obesity rates, uh, making sure that, that um, ordinances allow and indeed encourage uh, backyard gardens, farmers markets, uh, public gardens, um, easy to change the ordinance so that schools and government buildings aren't selling chips and sodas and candy bars get it out of there. So, you know, we actually have a food policy menu with about of 35 things that a city can do to, at the city level, to have a real measurable impact. You know, we have cities like Fort Worth, Texas, who worked with us for five years, and we lowered the obesity rate by 5%. The other thing is start eating these foods. The market responds to what consumers want. So you vote every time you go buy food. When you go buy Burgers and Coke and and Doritos. You're voting for one kind of food, whereas if you're uh, seeking out the whole plant based food, which we know um, is is uh, fueling longevity, that's also going to fuel uh, the these the companies, and they're going to respond.
0: Yeah, I, I do think don't underestimate the power of voting with your dollars. You, know, you mentioned Kraft. Kraft acquired our, our mutual friend Mark Sisson's company, Primal Kitchen, which is great they they produce great products. General Mills is trying to do a lot with regenerative agriculture. Uh, but again, companies will produce better options if consumers demand them. We still have we I look where we where we if I think about processed food in general, you know, because look, you travel, I travel, I don't travel as much as I used to, but processed food happens. The options we have today in terms of better, healthier options compared to 10 years ago, it is night and day. But with that said, there is still so much junk. I mentioned to you before the show, we went to Disney World, took our family to Disney World for the first time. And the amount of crap there, it was unbelievable and completely at odds with Disney's philosophy in, in many degree. And, and, and they so there you have it
1: a couple of things I, I i wholly agree with you but I, I also believe there there's room in our life to celebrate and uh you take your kids to disney world once in their childhood or you know once every few years it's not going to hurt them um the, the, what, what what i'm more interested in is getting people to shape their their kitchen environments you know i wrote a whole book on this the blue zone challenge where I dug up about uh, fifteen evidence-based ways where you can set up your kitchen so your family is going to mindlessly eat better almost every day, and that's the stuff that counts. And so things like, um, first of all, uh, y- you know, we know the four foods that are most toxic for us, and they are processed meats, contain known ca- cancer uh, carcinogens. Uh, packaged sweets, uh, soda pops, the number one source of refined sugar in our diet, and salty snacks, which are most highly associated with obesity. Should you be able to enjoy those? Yeah, probably. But just don't bring them in your home. And if you do bring them in your home, having a junk drawer that's out of the way, uh, people are way less likely to uh, eat them. If You know, we tend to be on what I call a seafood diet we, we, if we still eat it. So.
0: Well, but before we go back to to the contents of the, the book and, and some of the great communities and recipes you discovered in that process, I do want to spend a moment on this idea of joy. And it's my belief that our biggest crisis right now is our mental health epidemic and more specifically driven by loneliness and our lack of meaningful IRL connection, which was all accelerated. I think we had it, but I think it was accelerated with COVID. And I, I'm pretty sure you're aware of this, the Rosetto study, which is like my favorite study in that it's it speaks to the the magic and the health benefits of social connection. And that's a blue zone tenant. And could you spend a moment, because I think that's something we just don't talk enough about how important IRL connection is, multi-generational living, breaking bread together, having a piece of cake, but having it with friends, having wine, but having it with friends. And I think we've lost sight of that to some degree in that in our space, um, many people tend to be a bit rigid uh, to their belief systems around nutrition and find themselves in separate camps, almost symbolic of politics right now. but. Spend a moment on joy and social connection and the role it plays in all of this, because we also can't measure it. And we all like measuring things.
1: So I'll just go back to the original Blue Zones work. So, five places where people live statistically longest. And with National Geographic and funding from the NIA, we actually did measure these places Sardinia, Italy, Okinawa, Japan, Ikaria, uh, the. Uh, Nicoya Peninsula of Costa Rica and the Seventh Day Adventist. These all live measurably longer with a fraction of the rate of heart disease, fraction of the rate of cancer, about a fifth the rate of diabetes and a fifth the rate of heart disease. Um, Costa Rica, for example, Nicoya, one half the rate of middle age mortality, and um, they spend one fifteenth the amount we do on healthcare. So my team travels there and we and we start looking and we're naive at first. We're looking for uh, a compound some herb, some uh, um, uh, remdesivir, or something, some uh, exotic element that's going to, that explains longevity. And we couldn't find it. And we found this whole food plant-based diet. That's interesting. But we also noticed nobody's lonely there. Every time you, 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 the option to implode in your house or your room with your handheld device isn't there. Cause someone's going to be pounding on your door to go to the festival or to go to church. A lot is about your environment. You know, you, you, we just talked about life in coconut grove and how, you, you know, you, you basically have to drive everywhere and drive kids to school, et cetera. Uh, in blue zones, the moment you step out your front door, you're bumping into people. Uh, you're, you, you see your neighbors, you walk to the market, uh, you walk down for a couple of coffee, you don't make coffee at home. So you're constantly socially connection, connecting. Uh, and you know we know that people who have at least three friends they can count on, on a bad day, uh, live about eight years longer than people who are completely isolated. So you know, we can actually measure it, but also purpose. They all have vocabulary for purpose, um, like ikigai. You know, I, I was my book came out 15 years ago, and I was talking about purpose before anybody was. Uh, and we saw it very clearly. Every one of these blue zones had vocabulary for purpose. They had a reason for waking up in the morning. They they belonged to faith based communities. That was that's another way to basically close and play when it comes to having a social uh, network and and having a way to downshift. Um, and, and these are. Most of them, I would argue, are sort of environmentally driven, the, the social connection, the, the purpose, the low stress environment. But um, we can more clearly map those factors to tangible, measurable uh, in gains in life expectancy than we can for any supplement for testosterone or resveratrol or metformin or all these other Hocus pocus drugs that um, these enormous claims are are, um, uh, are are being made about them. Um, you know, it's purpose. It's having good friends who count on you on a bad day, uh, who you can count on on a bad day, and it's uh, it's it's uh, having these uh, uh, an environment where uh, you're less stressed out.
0: And are you as I'm very concerned about this? So am, am I am I over overthinking it, or is you as concerned as I am,
1: you're you're a clear voice in in the muddle of marketing bullshit and and supplement.
0: <laughs> so, with with all that said, we'll come back to food because I think we've established that. I just wanted to hit the connection and purpose before we come back to food and you go on this incredible journey across America, and you you go to a lot of places that people tend not to go to in our world. I think think in our world, people spend time in LA, they'll spend time in Austin now, maybe Miami, New York, and they forget about everything else in between. And that's a shame. In your travels across America, what, what was most surprising? What stood out to you?
1: This Gullah Geechee culture that's still alive, very hidden in the Carolinas and Northern Georgia, stretches actually down to um, um, southern Georgia some. But these were uh, Gullah Geechee originally, where they were slaves, brought over largely for their rice-cultivating gifts, their talents. The big, one of the biggest man-made features on Earth are the Ace uh, Basin rice paddies uh, in the Carolinas, and you can see it from space. This was made by enslaved Americans. Who came over with these african uh, diet, uh food traditions, and they met, and because they they had uh, their own, they, they, they cultivated rice. Their enslavers gave them an element of freedom. They usually had a house away from the plantation, where they had their own garden, and they were able to, to simulate the European influence from their enslavers, along with Native Americans, and they came up with this very explosively creative delicious cuisine gbgichi um the uh, you we've all heard of of um uh, gumbo you know we kind of associate it with uh a new orleans food but gumbo was actually a west african word for okra and for gbgichi it's any dish with okra and they use a lot of okras to make these fantastic stews uh, that make you cry tears of joy um uh, the, the Native Americans—they had a very healthy diet. Remember, Native Americans—you know—we tend to uh, to uh, associate kind of uh, unhealthy eating with Native Americans, but you wind back the clock a hundred years—they they, they they weren't growing pigs and cows and chickens. <clears throat> yeah, they were getting some wild meat, but mostly, you know, especially in the southeast, they were eating corn and beans and squash—the three sisters. Uh, that was their the the basis, and they uh, we actually recreated what was more likely a Thanksgiving in the early part of the 17th century, 1721. Uh, part of the book we recreate the th- a first Thanksgiving dinner with a Wampanoag native and a food archaeologist and uh, the Pilgrims. You know, they by the time uh, September rolled around, they were out of they didn't have any flour or any butter or any sugar. Uh, They were relying on the crops, the the Native Americans, the Wampanoag taught them. And it was the first Thanksgiving dinner way more likely had a succotash at at the center of the table, which is corn, beans, and squash with some greens and some flavoring, Uh, but also maybe a tamale filled with um, dried blueberries or hazelnuts. We had those or... or, um, all these really creative there probably wasn't turkey at the re- first Thanksgiving so that was surprising and and then um I'd probably say you know just lastly uh the other thing that surprised me where there are these pockets with of Asian Americans largely older Asian Americans who came over here with very austere diets and they they're almost always immigrants they haven't completely um, lurch towards the standard American diet, but they do so sparingly. So they, they, there's a little bit of sugar and a little bit of meat in their, in their food, but it's, they do amazing things with greens and with, uh, tofu, um, that, you know, aren't, if if it's too, I would say, austere Americans aren't going to eat it. And if it's got too much of the, You know, sort of meaty, cheesy, sugary stuff in there. It's not healthy. They're really good at getting the sweet spot of um, of fusing their tradition with an American influence. And um, you know, I met this. I was in an area of Minnesota that looked like Cambodia. It was a hot August morning. It was steamy, and the forests were rioting around with these weird vines, and there were these exotic plants growing and these old Hmong ladies with these baskets on their backs, picking bitter melon and, and uh, uh, these weird kind of watermelons and these Hmong zucchini. We were 100 yards from a Target store. <laughs> Excuse me.
0: And um, well, That's like everywhere. If you're in Minneapolis, that's like everywhere in Minneapolis, you're 100 yards from a Target store. But yes.
1: <laughs> but this was particularly stark. But anyway, I guess to sum, to wrap it up, the stunning culinary genius that is often right next to our homes, and we just never bother to go find it. And in Blue Zones American Kitchen, I found it and brought it to life with beautiful photography and then captured their recipes.
0: So uh, of all the foods, was there one that jumped out again in in terms of, hey, we should, be paying more attention to this one in terms of its nutrient density its taste i think with food and superfoods there's a tendency to have a, a hot food or, or or something that's on trend you know it was kale for a while and it was kale everything and there are a lot of great vegetables a lot of great fruits a lot of great more exotic foods that we're just not familiar with that have tons of benefits
1: Yes, there is one food that Head and Shoulders stands above everyone, and I hate to beat a dead horse, so to speak, but uh, beans. (laughs)
0: That's
1: (laughs) they're cheap. Uh, uh, Two cups of beans a day will give you all the fiber you need. Fewer than ten percent of Americans get enough fiber. Beans will cover that. They are a fantastic protein, especially when paired with a grain. Uh, They uh, they have follow. uh, dozen micronutrients. I won't list them all. Uh, but they're also can be made to taste good. Americans don't know how to make beans taste good. And and this Blue Zone American Kitchen, its predecessor, Blue Zones, about half the recipes are be- beans. Why? Well, part of it, we know that if you're eating a cup of beans a day, it's probably adding about four years to your life expectancy. But they're in every one of these cultures, and in many cases, there's 400 years of trial and error to learn how to make these beans taste delicious. And to your point about superfoods, yeah, I know for a while it was uh, the, the, those goji berries and, and uh, as you said, kale and, uh, and these exotic nuts. That's all bullshit. Um, the, the super if, if, if you go and you see a package in the grocery store, it said, and it says superfood, you're probably buying junk. Uh, it's, it's probably processed. It's probably got sugar in it to make it go down. Those goji berries were all sprayed with sugar half the time. Um, kale fine. But, um, if you're not going to eat it for a long time, i.e. decades, forget about it. These superfood trends come and go. But when it comes to longevity, there's no short-term fix. There's no, there's no food you can eat. There's no supplement you could take. There's nothing you can do today, this week, or this month that's going to give you 5, 10 more years of life in 40 years. You have You have to find something you're going to do every day. And finding delicious whole food plant-based recipes that you love, you're going to eat it every day. I have on my stove here, I don't know if you can see my stove. Yeah, that big pot there, it's got my minestrone in there. I make that every week and that's got three types of beans in it. It's got um, onions and tomatoes and celery and carrots and red peppers and herbs and potatoes and uh, extra virgin olive oil. And I feed off of that all, all all the time. So my gut um, it's like a New Orleans party down there at, at Mardi Gras, uh, with all the fi- fibers and my microbiome rewards me then with short chain fatty acids, with, which, uh, mute inflammation. They, um, uh, fine tune your immune system. They provide, uh, uh, hormones that make you feel better. I get all my vitamins. I get protein. And by the way, that, that pot of food that I just showed you. That pot of food cost probably 10 bucks and we'll make 10 meals.
0: Well, you know, you mentioned beans and, and you also mentioned Vital Farms and, and, and Matt O'Hare. Coincidentally, last night I had, what we had as a family, we had uh, refried beans, black refried beans with olive oil. And then I took Vital Farm eggs, sunny side up, and put it on top. And we all had that for dinner in a family of five and pretty awesome.
1: Well, by, by the way, Matt O'Hara was here one hour ago. He spent the last three days here. You know, I mean, he'll maybe eat one egg a month. He's basically a vegetarian, oddly enough. I mean, you know, if you're going to eat eggs, I'm all for Vital Farms eggs. They, less cruelty, easy on the environment. You know, the jury's out when it comes to eggs. And to be honest, people in blue zones ate two or three eggs a week, eggs that look like Vital Farms eggs, not the ones that look like the eggs you buy in a gas station. Um, but, um, yeah, you know, I, you know, I put that in the, I mean, I don't eat them, but, um, I understand, uh, you know, people are gonna eat some plant-based, I mean, some animal-based food. And, uh, um, that's probably one of the, one of the, the least damaging or, you know, I don't know, potentially healthy foods. I, I, I don't really know.
0: Yes. and, And, you know, it segues you and I, before the show, we were talking about our mutual friends, Mark Sisson. And rich roll, and from a diet perspective, so they're both. I think Mark is sixty nine. Rich, I think, is fifty five or fifty six. Both are in incredible shape. Both are amazing people. And from a diet perspective, they don't have much in common. In that, Rich is one hundred percent plant based. Mark is, I, I would say, paleo. Eats a lot of meat, carnivore almost. But the what they have in common. What do they have in common? They work out a ton. They're in incredible physical shape and they don't eat a lot of processed foods, but it works for them.
1: They're both nice guys. Yeah, it does work for them. Um, uh, But I, you know, if you look at the epidemiology, if you follow heavy meat, but both Mark and
0: a lot of vegetables, very plant forward, very plant, I would say plant strong,
1: but, but they're both, you know, an N of one. I mean, you cannot really extrapolate to the whole population. And we know, I mean, from the Adventist health study that followed over 100,000 people for 30 years, and you compare the meat eaters with the either plant-based or the, uh, pescatarians. the plant; Those are basically vegans who eat fish, you know, up to once a day. So the, those plant-based eaters are living about four to seven years longer, depending on their sex. And a fraction of the rate of about a third of the rate of cardiovascular disease, about um, a third the rate of uh, diabetes. Uh, they also weigh 20 pounds less. So it's really dangerous, I think, to um, I, I, you know to look at Mark and say, yeah, yeah. You look at that. by the way, I see Mark in the weight room all the time. Mark, Mark is an he is a workout. Uh, fanatic and not a fanatic a workout enthusiast. And, uh, and so, um, yeah, you don't want to look at individuals. You really want to look at populations over time. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's an association. Um, we, I can't tell you, it's a little bit like people who eat a lot of plants and very little meat are living a long time. People say, well, you know, you can't, that's association. Well, it's also association uh, if you turn up the furnace in your house and and um, you start sweating, you can't prove that sweating is from the hotter room, but you know it's becomes pretty convincing at a certain point.
0: Look, I think without question, it's very difficult to argue that if you eat a mostly plant based diet, you're going to be in fantastic shape. And then whether it's you know zero percent meat or twenty percent meat or Whatever it might be that you're going to be, you got to figure that out on your own. Or in some cases, maybe it's fifty percent. But but like starting with plants is the found plants is the foundation.
1: Plants is the foundation. I, I well here's here's what I'll say in blue zones. When you do a meta analysis of all five blue zones for the past eighty years, what they were eating traditionally: meat five times per month. And I think that's probably. You know, if you've, I, I'm not an advocate of meat, but if you're going to eat meat, I think, you know, around once a meat, once a week uh, is probably okay. Uh, Harvard's Walter Willett, I think he's one of the best food scientists in the, in the country. He said meat, and he's not a vegan. He said meat, but he said meat's a lot like radiation. We know a lot, eating a lot will kill you, but we don't know the safe level. But, you know, throughout history, uh, you know, most of, Early humans, a minority of their diet came from meat. You know, there'd be a kill, there'd be some meat around, they'd pounce on it. Remember, there's no refrigeration, so it wasn't, you know, off and around a day or two later. They were, they were, uh, um, they were hunting, they were gathering mostly uh, roots, tubers, berries, nuts. They they probably knew 150 uh, plants that they could eat that we don't even recognize anymore. That's probably where most uh, humans evolved eating that food.
0: So, uh, on that note of the 150 plants we don't eat anymore, you know, something that, you know, when I was reading the book and and hearing you speak about kind of the the lost foods in the the Carolinas, if you will, do you think we'll get back to a place where we're going to have innovation, or maybe not innovation per se, but a rediscovery of these? These plants, these vegetables, these superfoods, if you will, that have kind of been ignored, with the exception of some of these cultures that have also largely been ignored in America.
1: Yes, I do. Uh, I we're hardwired for novelty, and every generation likes its new thing. And um, as I think people realize the dangers of eating processed food, the the next area of innovation. I think is in food that's right under our nose. Uh, I'll give you a couple of great examples. Uh, in the in the Carolinas, these Gullah Geechee people they cultivated a type of rice that came from an African seed, not an Asian seed. And the rice they ha- they harvest is called Carolina Gold. And there's actually a mill there, Aaron Mills, I think it's called, where you can call up and order it. And it's it's nutty. It almost has a, a hint of vanilla to it. I actually have it on my stove right now. I made up a pot of it. Um, It's uh, a little bit healthier than regular rice, more grain. It's got the whole um, germ in the middle. Germ is usually taken away because it has a little bit of fat in there, but it's this rich and nutty and vanilla rice. Um, um, Benny seeds, which are also, um, they look, they're basically sesame seeds, but the Gullah will ferment them. They'll just let them sort of sit and it takes on this sort of pungent, characteristic that's redolent of truffles and or miso. And they'll add these fermented uh, seeds. So they're hugely healthy, probiotic, um, still practiced among Americans, uh, but you know they're right to be brought back. Uh, Mungs have a whole variety of, of these um, uh, sort of tuberous vegetables. They're, they're Mung cucumbers, which they scrape out the middle and they make a delightful beverage out of it a bitter melon, uh, which is really bitter, but in the same way, people often don't like beer the first time they taste it, but then they really like it. Uh, bitter melon's the same way, but bitter melons have all these um, uh, ke- biochemicals that lower blood sugar. So long-winded answer to yes, there's a lot of room for uh, ingredient innovation right here in America.
0: I love it I love it and in closing, other than pick up this book because it is a fantastic book filled with great pictures and recipes and perfect for for Christmas um what what is your hope with this with this project with this book with the blue zones american kitchen
1: i I had a number of hopes from um, the blue Zone American kitchen the first one is to propose an alternative standard American diet six hundred and eighty 1000 people will die every year prematurely eating the standard american diet. If if people ate the alternative standard american diet i propose in the blue zone american kitchen, virtually all those deaths would not, never happen. And guess what? The people who brought us this diet are the under-celebrated ethnicities, the ones we've overlooked but have been here holding the treasure the whole time. So i think it's a a, a real nod to the you know ethnic diversity of America and the and the uh, um, cultural diversity of America uh, tend to bring bring those back. Uh, if people have more questions, they can direct message me uh, at Dan Butner. I'm I'm good at answering people's questions and and uh, the book is out December 5th. It's on Amazon and um, it's a, makes a great gift to, for anybody you'd like to see live a little bit longer. Uh, don't give it to your enemies. But uh, friends and family, it's a nice gift.
0: It is a great gift and another another amazing book, which I'm sure will be a bestseller. Dan, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Great to see you again.